Father in heaven, thank you so much for this opportunity you've given us to be in your family, to gather together as your children, uh, to be able to sit at your feet and hear words from your mouth, God Almighty, words that we need to hear to give us the courage and the boldness, the faith that it takes for us to live the lives you've called us to. I do pray at this time, Father in heaven, that our ears may be attentive to your words. I pray that our hearts may be humbled before you to receive whatever it is that you have for us that will leave here changed people. Thank you so much for your love. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. It's in Jesus' name have we prayed. Amen. Well, guys, it's so good to be here this morning. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 16. We will begin there. Matthew chapter 16. In verse 13, the scriptures read, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. I hear in Matthew 16, we find Jesus. He's on his journey with his disciples. And it says, they have journeyed to this location called Caesarea Philippi. And he turns to his disciples and he asks them, guys, stop for a second. Who do people think I am? And it says, the disciples are like, well, most people think you're like a prophet. Like maybe John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah. Some, some wise man sent by God to tell us what he wants us to do. It's like, okay, what about you guys? You're my disciples. You are the ones who have been with me for going on almost three years. You have an intimate knowledge of me. You spent time with me. Who do you think I am? And then without any prompting, Simon Peter raises his hand and is like, Ooh, ooh, I know this answer. Ooh, I know. Pick me, pick me, pick me. And he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I'm sure the rest of the disciples are looking at him because sometimes Simon Peter gets the answer wrong. Sometimes he doesn't know the best thing to say. So I'm sure the other disciples are waiting with bated breath, wondering, oh, what's he going to say to him? I'm sure some of them, maybe Thomas is like, I doubt he has the correct answer. It's like he about to get the smack. Because you, you, you remember, it's, it's the same Peter who was drowning when he was supposed to be walking on water. Oh, he about get it. Like, Jesus is going to tell him for a lot time. But Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Peter. This was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. That answer is correct. I can imagine Simon Peter going like, of course it's correct. What are you talking about, man? Shoot, man. So he's looking at Thomas and be like, yeah. Me, keys to the kingdom, not you. Get stepping. Maybe he didn't say that, but you weren't there. But 
Jesus says to him, yes, you're correct. I am the Messiah. I am the son of the living God. And he says, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And even the gates of hell are not going to be able to stand up against it. And I've always wondered, why does Jesus choose this time to declare to his disciples, and obviously to declare to us, that he's going to build his church? Because if you look through the account of Jesus, this is the only time that he tells them he's going to build his church. Why does he choose this time more than any other time? And then when I looked up, I saw the location they were at. They were walking in Caesarea Philippi. In the first century, Caesarea Philippi was a town that was located north of the Sea of Galilee. And so this is the time in Israel where they'd been colonized by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was not a monotheistic society. They were a pagan society. And so you must imagine that most people in Israel, after being conquered by the Roman Empire, have begun to adopt some of the pagan rituals and the pagan belief systems. And so historians tell us that Caesarea Philippi, because it was north of the Sea of Galilee, which was also north of Jerusalem, it was far away from the temple in Jerusalem, a.k.a. far away from Judaism, it was a pagan town. It was a place where even though some Israelites lived, they didn't really, really worship Jehovah God. Most commentators liken it to modern-day Las Vegas. So essentially, it's like in Caesarea Philippi, in the first century would be like walking down the strip in Las Vegas, seeing all the items of pagan worship, seeing the prostitution, seeing the bar, seeing the drunken people, seeing all the crazy chaos. And it's in the midst of all of this chaos, it's in the midst of all of this sin and impurity and immorality that Jesus Christ himself declares, I am going to build my church and even the gates of hell will not stand up against it. That was Jesus' message. Now you can look at the world we live in today with all the chaos, with all the crime, with all the sin. Sometimes it depresses and discourages us so much that every single day you wake up, you look at the news, and somebody's been murdered. Somebody's committed suicide. Somebody's been raped. Somebody's house has been burgled. There's a tornado. There's something. And sometimes even us as Christians, we're like, oh my gosh. In the midst of all this, Jesus says, there is an answer. There is hope. There is a solution. And do you know what it is? It is the church of Jesus Christ. Are you with me this morning? And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Jesus' church. Because Jesus here in Matthew 16 wanted his disciples to understand that the one thing that's going to stand the test of time, the one thing that's going to even be able to stand and push back the forces of darkness, the one thing that's going to stand its ground even against the gates of hell is Jesus' church. In here in verse 18 when he says, I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock I'll build my church, the Greek word like most of us know is ekklesia. It's the first time Jesus introduces this concept of ecclesia, which loosely translated is the called out. Those that have been called out. Obviously, it's from this same word, ecclesia, that we get the Spanish word, iglesia. Yeah. Or for those of us who may speak French, that's where we get the French word, église. And then for the one Portuguese speaker amongst us who's sitting in the back, that's where we get the Portuguese word, Igreja, yes. All these words, yes, come from the Greek word iglesia, which means the called out. 
What Jesus was saying is that, guys, look at this chaos. Look at this craziness. Look at all this sin in this world. But I'm going to do something that's going to stand up against the forces of darkness. I'm going to call my people out of the darkness, out of the chaos. I'm going to build my congregation. I'm going to build my family. And my family, my church, is going to be able to stand up against the gates of hell. That was God's solution. The amazing thing is the concept of a called out is not even new to the New Testament. It even exists in the Old Testament. Go with me to Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11 in verse 1, the Bible reads, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking him by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. In here, we get God's template. God's plan for generation upon generation. He says, it was out of Egypt that I called my son. Yes, that phrase, out of Egypt I called my son. Guess what Greek word that translates into? Iglesia. This is where the concept comes out of. That even in the Old Testament, God looked down on earth and he saw his people under bondage in Egypt. And to stop the tide of tyranny in Egypt, you know his solution? Let me call my people out and take them to the promised land. And as it says, it says here in Hosea, yes, he called his people, the Israelites, out. But it's like, the more I called to them, the further they walked away from me. Which sadly has been the history of God's people throughout generations. That the more God chooses to call you and I out of the world, guess what you and I do? The more we go running to the world. Like, the more he calls to us, the more we want to go and be a part of the world. But God has always determined that he would build his church, his ecclesia. And so that's what Jesus was referring to in Matthew 16, where he says, Now, once and for all, one for all time, I am going to build my church where the gates of Hades will no longer be able to prevail against it. And the gates of Hades, Satan himself, can no longer prevail. Today, you and I get a chance to worship God in his ecclesia. You and I get a chance to participate in Jesus' church. Are you with me this morning? Go with me to Acts chapter 2. Our first point, the fellowship of the called out. Acts chapter 2. All the Old Testament and the New Testament predictions about the ecclesia, Jesus' church, as you and I know, if you've done the kingdom study, finds fruition in Acts chapter 2. It's on the day of Pentecost there in 29 AD. It says that the faithful disciples of Jesus are gathered together. There's about 120 of them in an upper room. And they are praying, they are worshiping God. But they were there that day when a severe wind basically blows through the entire city of Jerusalem. 
it is the festival of Pentecost, which is celebrated 50 days after the Passover. Now, as most of us would know, Passover was the big Jewish celebration where they remembered God calling them out of slavery, out of bondage, out of Egypt. So 50 days ago, these guys took a solemn remembrance of what God had done by calling them out of Egypt. We know that the Passover was a somber time because that was the day in Egypt where God kills all the firstborn sons of man, woman, child. And so it was a very, very somber time when they walked out of Egypt. And so Passover is celebrated at twilight in a very somber way. But 50 days later, they will basically celebrate the fruits of the harvest. Why? Because 50 days later is when they will celebrate when they eventually, after 40 years, enter into the promised land, sow their seed, and for the first time, the manna from heaven stops raining down, and they're actually able to eat the fruits of the land. And so from generation to generation, on the day of Pentecost, Jews from the diaspora, as they do call it, essentially Jews from every nation under heaven, would show up in Jerusalem for a big celebration. In 29 AD, on the day of Pentecost, as the Jews who had descended on Jerusalem from the diaspora are there celebrating, a mighty wind blows on through the land. It's so mighty that everybody in the city comes outside wondering what's going on. And what happens is the faithful disciples of Jesus, led by a man named Simon Peter, come on out of the upper room. And watching the spectacle in front of them, Simon Peter gets up and he preaches the very first gospel sermon. Why is it Simon Peter preaching? Because like we read in Matthew 16, he's the one with the key. Yeah. He's the one person in all of Jerusalem that day who understood what was going on. That just like 50 days prior, they had celebrated God calling them out of Egypt. Now God was putting out a new call. Now God was going to do the calling out one more time for the very last time. He was building his ecclesia, and he wanted to find out who will respond to his call. It says here at the end of his message in verse 36, he says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are, uh, God will call, for all who are far off. Verse 40. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. When Peter sees the crowds, he preaches the very first gospel message. And he tells them, if you want to respond to the call of God, if you want to respond and be a part of what God is doing, you got to repent. you got to make a decision right now that you're going to change your life, that you're no longer going to live for yourself, for your own desires, for your own thoughts, for your own emotions. But from this point on, you're going to live for God most high. He says, and then you are to be baptized. That you may have the forgiveness of all your sins that God himself will put his Holy Spirit in you. According to Ephesians 2, the Holy Spirit will be a deposit in each and every single one of them. Guaranteeing their inheritance when God comes back to claim those that are his very own. He says this promise 
is not just for you who are here 29 AD day of Pentecost. It's for you and for your children and your children's children for all whom the Lord our God has called. That is the call of God. He's calling men and women out of the world, out of the society to become his people, his very own, his ecclesia. And he says, whenever it is that you hear this call, it is an invitation from God for you to come out of the world, to come out of your own life, to come out of your own desires and be a part of his ecclesia, to be a part of Jesus' church. Are you with me this morning? It goes on in verse 42. It says, those who had been baptized devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. For everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miracles signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It says, after the 3,000 are baptized, after the 3,000 respond to the call of God, and so they are called out of the world to become his disciples, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Why? Because we know in Matthew 28, Jesus had commanded his disciples that they were to make disciples of all nations, then baptize them, and then do what? Teach them to obey everything he's commanded. And so this 3,000 that have just been baptized now need to devote themselves to the teachings of Jesus that are going to come to them through the apostles so they too can learn how this new life goes in the ecclesia of Jesus. It says, everybody was filled with awe. Wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And it tells us that they continued to meet together, yes, in their homes, but every day they would congregate in the temple courts. The question comes, why did they meet in the temple courts? Well, for one, the 120 were in the upper room when the events began. It's going to be super hard to fit 3,120 people in an upper room. So they had to find a different location which could house all of the new believers, all of the new people, disciples that had become part of the congregation that had been called out. And the one community space they could find was the temple courts. Well, what was the temple courts? It was essentially the courtyard for the temple. The temple was the seat of Judaism, where people would come to worship Jehovah God. It had in front of it the altar where people would sacrifice the animals on a yearly basis to take away their sins. But then the outer courts was given to those people who are not allowed in the temple, which was essentially the Gentiles, or any Jewish person who may have been emasculated. They were not allowed in there anymore. And so all the cast-offs from society, that's where they hung out. And so guess where the disciples in the first century hung out? Out there with the cast-offs. And the amazing thing is that they would worship God in the temple courts with the temple itself literally in front of them. Why? Because in the literal sense they understood that all of them, because the first 3,000 were all Jewish people. And we know that they were all there because they had come for Pentecost. So they had come to worship God at the temple. But now they understood that they were no longer part of temple worship. That the temple standing in front of them, they were no longer members there. 
they'd been called out of the temple to come worship the true God here in the courtyard. And it's important because sometimes some disciples feel a little bit uncomfortable about some of the meeting spaces we have for church. Sometimes people are like, so wait, where are we having the SS Regents? HSS, I'm sorry. Where is I mean, that's where, that's where I took my econ class. It's just, it's weird. Like, how can we have church there? It just, it just doesn't feel right, you know? And they were like, oh, you know what? God worked. The janitor opened the door for us. We can use Humanities Auditorium. And then somebody's like, well, it's a step up. But, like, my Psychology 101 class meets there. And it's like, I just, I so why don't we have, like, a building? Like, all this special missions money that we keep taking, like, can't we just, you know, buy a building or something where every Sunday I know where we're going to go? The amazing thing is the disciples in the first century met together in the temple courts because they understood one thing and they remembered one thing, that in Matthew 18, verse 20, Jesus had told them, wherever two or more of you are gathered in my name, there is where I am. They understood. It doesn't matter the geographic location we meet. It doesn't matter the building. It doesn't matter whether it's uncomfortable or comfortable. All that it matters is those that have been called out of the world. The people who understood that their sins are forgiven. Who have come to worship Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the Almighty God Himself. Because that is where the church of Jesus meets. microphone didn't like that. <laughs> because that is how the first century church started. They met together in homes. Why? Because wherever two or more are gathered together in my name, that's church. Because church is ecclesia. It's the called out. It's so sad that in our 21st century, the word church has been so watered down that most people, 85% of everybody you ask, is going to associate the word church with a building. It's been so far removed from what it actually was in the first century. It was people who understood that they'd been pulled out of mainstream society, mainstream culture. They'd been pulled out of Judaism. They'd been pulled out of the temple. They'd been pulled out of what the popular kids do so they could worship God acceptably. Turn with me to Acts 18. The fellowship of the called out. In Acts 18, it tells us in verse 24, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a Latin man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Let's pause there. In Acts 18, we're in the city of Ephesus. Priscilla and Aquila live in Ephesus because if you study out the book of Acts, they used to live in Rome. But then Claudius expelled all the Jews out of Rome because he was sick and tired of all the riots that were being started because of the Christians. So Priscilla and Aquila, who were disciples, who were Christians, had been kicked out of their home in Rome. 
But then they had met Paul, who had basically brought them to Ephesus, where they started a church. It says here in verse 24 that a Jew named Apollos, Leonard Mann, native of Alexandria, he had a thorough understanding of the scriptures, but he knew only the baptism of John. For those of you who don't know, the baptism of John was actually supposed to prepare the way for Jesus to come. It was a baptism of repentance, yes, for the forgiveness of sins, in anticipation of the arrival of the Messiah himself. And so that's what Apollos was teaching in the synagogue. The incredible thing is Priscilla and Aquila were not full-time ministry people. They were not like an evangelist and women's ministry leader couple. They were essentially what you would you'd basically consider like shepherds in the church there at Ephesus. It says they heard of this guy, Apollos, who had come from Alexandria in Egypt, who was preaching in the synagogues. Now, the synagogue was where all the Jewish people who followed Judaism would meet because there was only one temple allowed, and so that was in Jerusalem. And so if you lived anywhere else apart from Jerusalem, you couldn't just, like, construct a temple and put an altar there and be like, hey, you got a goat or something like that? Let's kind of have a barbecue. No, it didn't work like that. There was only one church, sorry, one temple in Jerusalem. So anywhere else you lived, they had a synagogue where they could go in there and they could be taught the Old Testament scriptures. And so Apollos comes into town, he goes to the synagogue. That's where the Jewish people who believe in the Old Testament go. But Priscilla and Aquila, who are disciples, hear him. So you know what they do? They invite him to their home. They didn't go to the synagogue and debate with him there. They didn't show up to the synagogue and be like, hey, dude, I know you're super smart, but <laughs> we know the Bible really good. We really know things in the Bible that you don't know. No, they invited him to their home. Because what Romans 16 tells us is that there was a church that met in Priscilla and Aquila's home. You know what they did? They called him out of the synagogue to come and see the true church of disciples. They called him out of the synagogue, out of Judaism, so he could see what the true ecclesia of God looks like. And it says, when he comes and he sees the church and they explain the word of God to him more adequately, he changes his mind. He's converted. It tells us in verse 27, when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. Why did they write to the disciples in Achaia to welcome Apollos? Because he's one of them now. When he first came into Ephesus, did any of the disciples welcome him? No, because he ain't one of them. But then when he wanted to leave Ephesus and go to Achaia, they write to the disciples in Achaia to welcome him. Why? Because he's one of them now. He's been converted. What we have here, guys, is the church of Jesus. It's like the scripture that Nick read earlier in Hebrews 12. That It might not look spectacular. We might not have stained glass windows. We might not have a building with a steeple up on top. And then you open it up and the people are in it. Nobody knows what I'm talking about. The three of us know what we, the three of us know what we know. When you come to see us, yes, we're not like the other churches out there. But you know the crazy thing? We are the ecclesia of Jesus. 
We are the ones who choose to meet here on a Sunday morning because we know that Jesus has called us and redeemed us from the world, from the chaos, from the darkness, and he's brought us to be with him, to be one of his own. Why? Because wherever two or three or four or five, however many, are gathered in Jesus' name, there he is. This is Jesus' church. It's kind of sad because even as we continue to study the Bible, we realize that even in the first century, the disciples started to get tempted about forming what has become known as institutionalized religion. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It's amazing because, especially here in the city of San Francisco, sometimes when you share your faith or you ask somebody to say the Bible or you even invite somebody to church, sometimes they'll tell you, oh, oh, no thanks. I'm not a fan of institutionalized religion. I'm a spiritual person. My relationship with God is between me and Jehovah God himself, right? And sometimes what these people mean is, I'm not a fan of when people are coming together and meeting in like a room and talking about Jesus together. Sometimes what they're trying to say is like, I don't want to go be a part of any group where some guy stands up on stage and tells the rest of us what to do. I'm not really a fan of that. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. In verse 16, Paul says, What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I'll be their God, and they'll be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I'll receive you. I'll be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. The church in Corinth is famous. Because in the first century, it was one of the largest Christian churches but it was one of the most messed up churches of all time. And the reason was because they were in a major city, Corinth. It was one of the major Greek cities of that time. And so pagan worship and idolatry and sin was all around them. And by the time Paul writes the book of 2 Corinthians, the disciples had been so tempted by the lifestyles of the pagan people around them that they had begun to adopt some of it. They begin to basically do what they saw their next door neighbors doing. Why? Because they wanted to keep up with the Joneses. They wanted to be like everybody else. And so Paul writes here in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 telling them, hey, there's no agreement between the temple of God and idols. You and I are the temple of the living God. See, because in the city of Corinth, much like we see here, the disciples saw that there were great big temples for Zeus and Artemis and all the other pagan gods. But then what did the Christians do? They met in homes. They met in courtyards, in community centers. And so compared to all the big Greek religions out there, they're like, we're nothing. It's like it's a little bit embarrassing to say they're like, uh, so where do you worship your God? In that room over there? <laughs> and then the person who worships Zeus is like, um, say what? Y'all like worship your God in that room? And you're the one supposed to have the truth? I mean, dude, sh- look. You see this building right here? Like 2,000 acres? 
That's how we worship Zeus. Because we actually care about our God. Because we actually spend our money, right? And he's blessed our fields and he's blessed our lives. So we can have all these. Look at the stained glass on there. Look at the state-of-the-art microphones. Do you guys have Bluetooth in the room that you worship your God? We have Wi-Fi, 5G. Do you have like a fog machine when you guys pray? No? No strobe lights? You can't afford it? Your God doesn't love you? Your God won't give you money for a fog light? Like... So what can your God do? Like, seriously. The disciples in Corinth felt the pressure around them to look like their neighbors, to to try and worship God the way they saw their neighbors doing it. They felt left out. But it's because they had forgotten something. They hadn't been left out. They'd been called out by God. They hadn't been left behind. They had been called out by God to leave the pagan rituals, to leave the darkness, to leave the chaos and the sin, the immorality and all of that so they can be a church of God, the pure church of Jesus Christ. Are you with me? And so Paul says to them, God wants you to know, come out, separate yourself from it. Come and be clean, and I will accept you. I'll be your father, and you will be my sons and my daughters. And that's God's message to you and me today. That in this room, it doesn't look spectacular, but it doesn't matter. Because Jesus himself is amongst us. Why? Because we are the ones that have been called out to come and worship God. It doesn't look spectacular, but it doesn't matter. Because we are the ones that have made a decision that it doesn't matter what the world around us is doing. We will not be peer pressured into joining them. We are going to remain here because we have been called out to be Jesus' church. It's so encouraging to have Joe and Ashley Campbell here, even as they're sharing for communion. And, and they, they didn't share that section of their story, but uh, uh, Joe and Ashley were converted in our former fellowship. And as many of you may know, our, our former fellowship grew to thousands upon thousands upon thousands of disciples in the known world. They planted churches in almost every major city in this world. But then several years ago, Satan struck. And so many of our worldwide uh, our brothers and sisters have been locked in a lukewarm state. Many people sadly have given up their relationship with God to go follow their own dreams, their own desires again. And so in the new movement, we said we will start again. Because we want to be different. Because we actually want to worship Jesus. And no, we're not standing here trying to compare ourselves with other people. That's not what this is about. This is about me reading the scriptures and determining, I want to be a part of the called out. I want to be one of those that Jesus will look at and say, you're my brother, you're my sister. Why? Because you left everything that the world had to offer. You left everything else to come be with my people. Left everything to come and follow me. And he says here, I'll be a father to you and you'll be my sons, my daughters. We are here because that's what we want. We're here because we actually want God to look at us as his sons and daughters. We're here because we're willing to give up whatever it is that the world would have to offer us 
Because being with God trumps everything. Are you with me, church? That's why I appreciate the candles. Coming here and seeing the like, wow, is this what we got? Okay, we'll, we'll make it work. And, and I appreciate them too because they, they have a home there in San Bruno and, and they're opening their doors for everybody to come and hang and fellowship because that's the church. When two or more are gathered together, that is the fellowship of the called out. And I think the challenge for us is our Bible talks need to look like that. Our Bible talks, whether they are in the singles ministry or in the campus ministry, whether we meet in a cafeteria, whether we meet in the mall, it has to be a place of people that have been called out. That if we have a Bible talk in the mall, anybody else who has come into the mall to either get some food or watch a movie needs to be able to see amongst us, those people are different. And it's not just because they have their Bibles open. There's something different about them. That in the midst of all of this, they have separated themselves. In the midst of all of this, they've been called out for a higher purpose. That's why their fellowship is different. That's why the smiles on their faces is different. That's why the joy in their hearts is different. That's what our Bible talks need to look like. So if anybody comes to check out our Bible talks, they should come into contact with Jesus Christ. Why? Because wherever two or more are gathered in his name, there he at. Second point. The message of the called out. Go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. In verse 22, this is what Peter says. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God, said purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, the Bible tells us, that when Peter begins to preach to all who had gathered there, he says, this that's happening before your very eyes, it's about one man and one man alone, Jesus Christ. He says, he was accredited to you by God, by miracles, wonders, and signs. But you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. You nailed him to the cross because of your sins. He says, it's impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus. And so he resurrected. And that, according to Peter, is why we're standing here today. That was Peter's message. There was nothing spectacular about it. There was nothing awesome about it. There was one thing and one thing alone. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul says that is the only message we have for a lost and dying world. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let's look at it. Go to 1 Corinthians. Chapter 1. The message of the called out. First Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says in verse 18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. 
Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through his wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Paul says we have one message. Jesus Christ crucified. It is the death of Jesus on the cross. It's Jesus shedding his blood that makes this possible. And so he says, this message is foolishness to anybody you're going to preach it to. And up to the 21st century, <coughs> excuse me, it totally is. Yeah. You can go almost anywhere in San Francisco and you can tell people, hey, my life has changed. Why? Because some guy died on a cross 2,000 years ago. You're like, you're crazy. He says, it's a stumbling block to Jews. Jews were the ones who had grown up with the patriarchs, whose understanding was that because of my ethnicity, because of my lineage and my connection with Abraham, the father of faith, I am saved. It's like it's a stumbling block because they will refuse Jesus Christ and him crucified. Wow. What amazes me is that sometimes you can talk to some people and they believe that because they're American and they were born in a Christian nation, they're saved. It's no different from the Jewish person who believed that because of his lineage to Abraham, he too was saved. Paul says, to them and to the Greeks, we have but one message. Jesus Christ and him crucified. But, verse 24, to those whom God has what? Called. Those of us who are part of the ecclesia, those of us who are part of Jesus' church, we understand. The cross of Jesus is the wisdom of God and is the power of God to rescue us from the sin, from the darkness, from the chaos out here in the world. We get it. We actually do. And so we may look outside and we may feel a little bit maybe disappointed by everybody going around here. It's like, no, 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 no. You actually have the truth. All the power of the Most High in the cross of Jesus was displayed and was able to rescue you from the darkness and bring you to the light. And yes, you might not have the best ethnicity. It doesn't matter because you have believed and because you have responded to the call of God coming through the cross of Jesus. No, you too are saved. You too have hope of eternal life. It says this is what it's all about. This was the message that the first century church preached. And this is the message that you and I have to preach and continue to preach until as many people as possible can respond to the call of God. So they too can be called out of darkness into the light. Are you with me? But if this was their message, the cross, maybe we should investigate it. Let's go to Luke 23. Luke 23. The message of the called out. Luke 23, verse 26. It says, As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him, and made him carry it behind Jesus. 
a large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never born, the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? This is when Jesus was crucified. Luke tells us that as Jesus is being led away to be crucified, they asked this man, Simon from Cyrene, to help him carry his cross. The Roman Empire at this point in time had colonized the entire known world. And what they used as their means of execution was nailing criminals to a cross up on a hill outside any city to execute them. The reason they did it was twofold. Number one, it was a way of killing criminals. But they actually did it on top of a hill. That way, when people woke up in the morning and they looked up on the hill, what did they see? A dead body. And so they could look at it and it would be a deterrent. Because next time you refuse to, be, to pay your taxes, a Roman soldier could grab you and tell you, I'm going to be back tomorrow at 9. If you don't have your taxes, you're going to be like that person right over there. The Romans allowed this to happen. It was a way of instilling fear in the people they had conquered. And it worked. And so when Jesus has been arrested by the Pharisees, and they want him executed, they hand him over to the Romans. Now, very unique to Jesus' case, like anybody who's seen the movie, they actually flogged him before they crucified him. And so most people who are going to be executed get to carry the cross and go up the hill. Jesus had been flogged the night before, and he had lost so much blood, he didn't have the strength and the energy to carry his own cross. And so as he's trying to carry it, almost every two or three steps, he stumbled to the ground. The incredible thing about Jesus is he was not going to quit. Even though he didn't have the strength, he would pick himself up every time and pick up the cross and go. Because he understood that he quit. If he gave up, there'll be no salvation for you and for me. But the Roman centurion saw, dude, if, if we wait for this Jesus to carry his cross all the way to the hill. We're going to be here all day. He doesn't have the strength. So they call Simon. It's like, hey, dude, come help him. And so Simon agrees. He picks up the cross. Essentially, in the eyes of the Roman soldiers, to speed up the process. This is what happened the day Jesus was crucified. As Simon helps Jesus to carry his cross up the hill, because he can't do it on his own strength, there are women watching this scene, and it says they're mourning and they're weeping. In the midst of all of that, Jesus stops and he says, don't cry for me. Don't mourn for me. Mourn for yourselves and for your children. Because if men do these things when the tree is green, what do you think will happen when it's dry? Verse 31 is an idiomatic expression that would be used in the first century. And sometimes when you read these expressions in the Bible and it kind of like, it gets a little bit confusing. You, to put it in context, you always have to remember that the first century was an agrarian society. They were basically, the society was built on agriculture. And so most of these expressions and phrases that they used would be based on farming. And so if you put yourself in the shoes of a farmer, if a tree is green, what does that mean? 
it's alive, it's healthy, it's going to produce fruit, we're going to be fed. But if a tree is dry, what does that mean? It's dead. There's not going to be any fruit. There's not going to be any harvest. So a green tree signalized or signaled good times. Dryness meant bad times, right? So Jesus says, if people are doing this in good times, why was it good times? Because God himself in the flesh was amongst them. And this is what they were doing. He says, what do you think is going to happen when God no longer walks amongst you in the flesh? And so we talk about Matthew, 13, Matthew 16, where they're in Caesarea Philippi, a pagan society. They get transported to the 21st century, and there's a Las Vegas for every state in America. Jesus says, don't cry for me. Cry for yourselves. Because the time of chaos and of darkness is going to come upon you. And on that time, you may not have Jesus in the flesh walking amongst you. And this, this is an incredible uh, event because this is Luke telling us what was happening when Jesus is about to be crucified. This is the message of the church, the message of the called out. Why does Jesus say this? Because he's actually discipling you and me about the different ways we may respond to the cross. You see, when the cross is preached, true disciples acknowledge it, repent, get baptized, and change their life forever, never looking back. But there are some of us who may behave like Simon of Cyrene. Everybody looks at him, and he's a good man, and I'm sure he was. But in this episode, in this scene, what was the function of Simon of Cyrene? It was to speed up the process to get Jesus crucified. See, some of us may be disciples, and we may be in this room today, and we haven't actually responded to the cross of Jesus through repentance and by preaching the message. We want to speed up the process of the message getting out without actually preaching the message ourselves. You see, Simon of Cyrene helped Jesus to get to the cross, but he himself was not on the cross. What Jesus would tell us is that if you want to be my disciple in Luke 9, what you got to do? Deny yourself and carry whose cross? Your cross. He was helping Jesus carry his cross. Jesus wants you and I to know that if we're going to be his disciples, if we're going to be part of his called out, his ecclesia, you and I have to carry our cross every single day. Your cross. What does that mean? It means I die to myself every day. I die to my desires. I die to my sin. I die to what I want in favor of what Jesus wants. I die to my identity. Whatever it is that makes me me, I give that up so that I can bear one identity, a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's what this is all about. I'm not here to show up on a Sunday, put my money in the plate so that others may go out and evangelize. No, I am the message because I put myself on the cross every single day. Are you with me, church? The second group is the women who are saying this and they're moved and they cry. But Jesus says, don't weep for me. They were having an emotional reaction to the cross. 
What is convicting is we do communion every single Sunday. Every single Sunday, we want to remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which we should. But we're doing this because God wants you and I to have a real response to the cross, not just an emotional one. It's not about coming here and hearing somebody talk about the cross or share their life and shedding a tear or bowing our heads in, in, in polite response and be like, wow, that's intense that Jesus wanted to die for me. And then walking out of those doors and living your life the exact same way you did before you entered here. That's why Jesus says, weep for yourselves. He doesn't want an emotional response to the cross. He wants a real response to the cross. The real response that calls you to do what? Change. What do we call that? Repent. Jesus wants you and me to repent. And that's why he calls on us as his church to take communion every time we get together. Because every single day, he wants to call you to repent. Because it's only in repentance that we can show ourselves separate and different from the world around us. Because what are we repenting from? Everything else has been done around you and me. That's what it means to be the called out. Let's close out here. Romans 12, it says, in response to the message, Romans 12 verse 1 says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul says, guys, respond in repentance to the message of the cross. You need to become a living sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that's alive. What does that mean? It's a sacrifice that's constantly going. Is that every day I sacrifice my wants, my desires, my needs. I sacrifice everything so that I can live for God, so I can live for Jesus. That is true repentance. And he says, that is your spiritual act of worship. In Jesus' church, that's how we worship him. It's by giving up ourselves every single day. Worshiping Jesus is not about coming and spending an hour, an hour and a half, singing a bunch of songs, bowing on heads and politely. Of course, we are to do that. But it's the evidence of a changed life. It's the evidence of a life lived in repentance because we want to demonstrate that we have responded to the call of God. We've been called out of society. We've been called out of the darkness. And we have formed what is known as Jesus' church. And to God be all the glory.